A couple of weeks ago, Susie had an exhortation that we consider giving testimonies to encourage one another. And, uh, you know, we're so accustomed to sending Joel off here in Yon. <laughs> Almost any time there's a dangerous place in the world, that's where Joel will be. And he recently returned from such a place. Joel has a testimony. Brother, would you come and give that testimony? First, I want to thank all of you who uh, prayed for me while I was in Iraq, uh, August uh, the 13th. I left. I got back last Sunday. And uh, thank you for praying for me. I do want to testify and thank the Lord that I believe it's because of your prayers and the prayers of many others that I can see your faces this morning. Uh, we had an amazing trip. Some of uh, the uh, people that were on the trip said it was the most amazing ministry trip of their lives. We had the chance to meet with uh, Kareem Sinjari, the Minister of the Interior, on three separate occasions. Our purpose for going was on his invitation to come to speak to Christian leaders across Kurdistan to hear their griefs, their sorrows, their fears, and what they would need in a newly being developed constitution in Kurdistan to even consider remaining in Kurdistan. The sad and incredibly unbelievable story uh, is that in 1990, 1991, there were maybe 3 to 3.5 million Christians in all of Iraq. That number has dwindled to somewhere around 250,000. And uh, one of the bishops we met with, Bishop Daoud, said if if this trend continues in two more years, there will be no more Christians in Iraq. And Iraq, of course, uh, historically is a Christian nation. The first churches were established by the followers of Apostle Thomas in the first century. And so it's a great and uh, sad story. I won't go into the details of it, but we were able to present to the uh, Minister Sinjari uh, a list of seven uh, re requests that if they sincerely want Christians to remain, that they must first and foremost rewrite a constitution that will be the law of the land and it will be the law over everything else. We didn't use the word Islam in there, but we imply that Sharia law could not be the law of the land. That's essentially the way almost all Muslim nations are controlled by Sharia law, regardless of what the constitution says, the Sharia law then trumps everything else if there's any question. So we, we presented that uh, request uh, to Kareem Sinjari, and we're following it up with a letter that is going probably this week to President Trump's advisory council, encouraging support for Kurdistan uh, in that they are working toward a new constitution, possibly independence, but particularly uh, support for the Christian population in Kurdistan. The story's long, and I, I, I'll not take Jim's time here to tell it, but let, let me tell you uh, that we were uh, planning all along to go into the uh, Nineveh Plains, uh, the ancestral homelands of Christians uh, around Mosul, Nineveh. Uh, we were especially going to the city of Karakash, which is 
uh, when it's been fully populated, there's about 50,000 Christians there, Bartella, another of the really great Christian uh, cities in the Nineveh Plain. And uh, for those of you who follow Iraq closely, the Nineveh Plains are under the jurisdiction of Baghdad. Kurdistan is a part of Iraq, but is semi-autonomous, does not have jurisdiction in the Nineveh Plains. So on uh, Monday morning, August the 21st, I'll always remember that day for the rest of my life, uh, we left uh, in four government cars, beautiful uh, Toyota Land Cruisers. We have Peshmerga uh, uh, soldiers in a, in a Jeep in front of us with a turret, and I think it's a 50 cannon machine gun on top of the, uh, uh, the Jeep. Another similar unit behind us, another security vehicle traveled with us. When we got to the checkpoint, uh, we left, I'll, I'll remember this time also so clearly, we left at about 10 after 9 on that Monday morning. We got to the checkpoint at, I'd say about 11 minutes, 12 minutes after 10. I, I remember looking at my, my phone. Everything seemed normal for the first minute or so. We came to the checkpoint. What we didn't know at that time is that the checkpoint had been taken over by PMUs, paramilitary units, uh, loyal to Tehran, and they have been fighting along with Iraqi forces to liberate Mosul, but they are also taking territory in the northern part of uh, the Nineveh Plains with the hope that sometime soon they'll be able to actually take so much territory that you could drive a car from Tehran all the way to Latika uh, in Syria on the Mediterranean and supply as much... Uh, ammunition, arms, soldiers, material into Syria and Lebanon to ultimately push Israel into the sea. I mean, that's their, that's their goal. So that kind of a force controlled the checkpoint. And uh, within about a minute or two, uh, what seemed to be quite routine became completely other than that. Uh, the uh, PMU acted like barbarians, they looked demonized. Uh, what, what looked like just three or four men, they shot off uh, perhaps 100 rounds over a period of 40 minutes, not at any person individually, but just into the air and threatening kind of shots. But um, uh, the first rounds then brought in maybe, of course, we didn't get an accurate count, but it seemed like maybe 50, 75, maybe even 100 other PMU uh, militiamen, uh, bandits, uh, desperados, uh, demonized guys, so angry, they're just like out of their minds, running with their heavy equipment, heavy arms. And uh, we knew we were in a, in a tough place. We were, of course, in the four vehicles, praying, asking the Lord for, for protection. Our four vehicles, uh, after about 20 minutes, tried to turn to go head back to Erbil City. We were blocked. Uh, uh, one of the guys, uh, the, all the drivers were just amazing. They could drive uh, on Hollywood stunt kind of films, uh, very aggressive. So our driver is just trying to, trying to inch up, inch up, inch up, just looking for an opportunity to make a break. And there's a, there's a PMU <coughs> militiaman right in front of us, just, just mad and mad and mad. And he's just looking at us 
we keep moving and he gets his AK-47, goes boom, 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 just over the top of, of our car, a couple of the shells bounce off the windshield and uh, we know this is pretty serious kind of business. And uh, so I, re I remember, and all of us had these thoughts, you know, we, we've had a, a wonderful life, the Lord has blessed us and didn't know if I'd see Ruthie again, didn't know if I'd see your faces. Um, after a while, another guy looked like he would have been a linebacker for OU, you know, just a massive guy with incredible gun just standing there, just, just daring us to try to make a move. But finally, our uh, Peshmerga units were forced by the Iraqi police to kind of move back toward the highway. And then we're thinking, this is a perfect hostage situation. They've moved the arc protection away, got maybe 100 PMUs around us. But for whatever reason, and I believe it was because of the prayers of all of you and many others that were praying. There was, a, there was a brother from Grand Rapids with us from a large church. He said that they do a lot of work in India. He had asked 1,100 Indian ladies to intercede on our behalf during that entire time. And I'm sitting in this car. I've got a young man beside me just crying out to the Lord that we might survive. The cameraman in the front just praying, save us, Jesus, save us, Jesus. And I said, guys, you know, I just really believe that those 1,100 ladies' prayers are effective on our behalf. I'm just believing that angels are here with us. And so the Lord brought us through, and uh, all of us, I believe, have this sense that our lives have been given back to us and that there is something still for each of us that we're on that trip to do. But you know what? That's true for each of us this morning. Our lives have been given back to us again this morning. And we have every opportunity to share Christ with our families, our friends, our oikos, as we've talked about so much. And uh, this final thought, uh, as I walked away from that situation, the next day we kind of had a debriefing. We talked, uh, talked a lot about it over the next couple of days. But uh, just a couple of things came. One, for whatever reason, God allowed us to experience that situation. Second, he protected us miraculously. Uh, third, he let us in some small way experience the, the, uh, the horrors of our Christian brothers and sisters who live in the Nineveh Plain, who testify to us. We don't know who's in control here. All kinds of units. The PMU, of course, very loyal to Tehran, very angry with American policy and very angry with Kurdistan trying to break away. And so, so we experienced perhaps some of their grief, their sorrow, their horror. And then the final thought I already shared, I believe the Lord showed us that he has redeemed us and redeemed us yet again for one more opportunity every day that we have to live for his glory. So God bless you. Your faces look really beautiful. And uh, thank you so much. So does yours. <laughs> Father, we always struggle for words to adequately express our gratitude. We thank you so much that our brother is with us, oh God. We thank you so much that you were not looking the other way. We thank you so much for the angels. That protected these dear ones, oh God.
And Lord, we pray that the goal of that mission will be achieved. In coming years, Joel and others can look back to that day and in ways that amaze them could say we truly saw something new begin on that occasion. We thank you through Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Mm. Love you guys. Amen. Well, I think we heard the real thing, didn't we? In case you don't know, it's September. <laughs> and uh, for churches and schools, September is really like the new year. That's when fall programs begin. Boys and girls are promoted from one class to another in school as well as our Sunday school. So in many ways, we'll have to say really September is the new year for churches. I was thinking about the schools that have just begun, and uh, never know why these thoughts come to your mind, but I started to think about the fact that the Oklahoma State Board of Education grades schools, and schools get a grade from A to F. Well, out of curiosity, I went online and looked up this program, and Notice that there were 90 Tulsa County schools that were graded. And of the 90, 45 got an F. Four got an A+. The A+, were given to the two international schools, one led by uh, Hanya Wester, the Zero Academy, uh, Washington, uh, which you have to kind of apply to get into, we'd, okay, we'd expect them to get an A plus one charter school, but all the rest were in the middle <laughs> as the schools were graded. I, I also then went online and, and searched further on what basis are these schools graded and who set the criteria for them. I found that to be a little bit revealing. You take a school like Kendall Whittier that has multiple racial groups there and some of the parents of the children can't quite speak English so that alone explains why that school got a D minus which I think is a bunch of foolishness because we know it's a much better school than that schools graded by the uh, state Bureau of Education by the way weren't we blessed last Sunday by the word that brother Jason brought us mm -hmm. And we want to continue to pray, as he urged us to do last Sunday, that God's grace will be sufficient for the school teachers. Well, I began to think, you know, schools are graded. I wonder if any one grades churches. <laughs> and uh, if so, what kind of a grade would TCF receive? And on what basis would we be graded? Well, I thought about Jason's talk last week, and you know I appreciated the wonderful transparency that he showed, but also the wonderful things that he pointed out that are true about TCF. We really are a family, and that's such a blessing. And I thought, okay, we got an A-plus on that. I thought also about 
And it's strange how this came to mind, but it did, the parable of the prodigal son, which really is mislabeled. It really is the parable of the elder brother because Jesus was making a point to the Jewish leaders to say, here's why I spend time with sinners. Here's why I spend time with publicans. We receive with joy those that have been lost, that have been found. And one thing that can truly be said about TCF, TCF has always had its arms open to those that many people just don't want. Somebody's in some kind of a problem, an addiction, or some life behavior, and you say, well, it's their fault, they deserve it. Well, didn't the young man who left his father and went off and got to the point he's almost ready to eat pigs, deserve it. <laughs> but there was rejoicing when he came back. So I think TCF gets an A-plus on that. But is there any other criteria? Did Jesus Christ ever show us any time when he graded churches? And the answer is yes. It's found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. By the way, the title of the book is Revelation. Somebody gets up and I hear them in the pulpit and they say, now we're going to turn to Revelations so-and-so. I immediately turn off. They don't even know the name of the book. So why should I listen to them? It is the Revelation or the Apocalypse of John or as it begins the Revelation of Jesus Christ. You have seven churches. Let me give you the background. Paul left Corinth, sailed east, arrived at Ephesus. He had with him two of his disciples, Priscilla and Aquinas, and he left them there, and he sailed on to finally to Antioch and then came back later. After he came back, he spent almost three years there preaching, and according to Acts 19, all of Asia heard the gospel. Now, the all of Asia was the region around Ephesus. And north out of Ephesus, there is a road that goes to a certain point, and then it turns east, and then it turns south, and then back west, and north back to Ephesus. And in the second and third chapter of Revelation, you find that the churches that were established as a result of all Asia hearing the gospel through the ministry of Paul, are those that are addressed first north, each of these cities where a church had been established, Jesus Christ grades each one of them. It's interesting as he grades two of them get A pluses, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Sardis gets a D minus. Laodicea gets an F, <laughs> and the others in the middle get other grades. And I thought if we look at this grading system as Jesus graded the churches, how would TCF fare? And I was pleased as I began to look at the positive things that Jesus said about these churches that every one that would apply in any way to our contemporary situation are reflected here. Praise God. And then 
I began to think, well, is there any one of these seven churches, the template that would be laid over it, anything close to the template that could be laid over TCF? And I believe there is. I believe it is the church at Ephesus. Our Lord Jesus said four things to the church at Ephesus. Let's think about those. The book of Revelation chapter 2 verse uh, chapter 2 verse 1 begins or to the angel of the church at Ephesus the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this what a description of Jesus as he is pictured in that portion of Revelation number 1 I know your deeds and your toil, and perseverance. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. I think that describes this church. October 2019, TCF will celebrate, I guess we'll celebrate, 50th anniversary of the birth of this church. Think about that, 50 years. And as we look back over those years, we've had many experiences. We, TCF has had many ups and many downs. I remember when TCF was first born, it was news. Beth Macklin, who was the uh, Tulsa World religious writer, editor, was somehow got enamored with TCF. Of course, TCF was exciting. And you'd get the paper in the morning to see who had died of drug overdose on Peoria the night before and what TCF had done on Peoria the night before. It was exciting news. In the early 1980s, I don't remember the exact year, I think 81 perhaps, I mean, must have been 82 or 83, the United States was in a time of tremendous economic depression. But Tulsa stood forth as an exception to that because of our oil industry. And so the National Geographic sent a team of reporters and photographers to Tulsa to do a story on Tulsa and how it was still flourishing in the midst of what was happening in the nation. Jim Inhofe, who was the mayor, I remember, in his biplane, flew the one reporter over the city to look at it. And they were doing a special story on Tulsa in the National Geographic. Interestingly, a part of that story was going to be Tulsa Christian Fellowship. And so I remember in this building we had the National Geographic uh, reporters and National Geographic photographers taking pictures and talking to us. We had a picnic. I remember Jim Price and I went out to... uh, uh, Chandler Park to hold benches so we could have the tables and nobody else could take them. Uh, people were immersed in the swimming pool. The National Geographic people took pictures of that. Very exciting. Of course, about the time they were ready to publish the article, the oil crash happened and Tulsa hit the bottom of the barrel, so they didn't run the story. <laughs> but TCF. In the 1990s, there was a Tulsa World reporter who was to write an article, something about churches and 
somebody suggested he come to TCF, and I remember Bill and I were sitting in the office, and he came and he said, you know, I've never heard of TCF. <laughs> Can you tell me something about it? Bill said he could have hit me in the gut with a ball bat when he, when he said that. But you see, we have had ups and we have had downs. But TCF has never wavered, faithfully plodding on. I think of the difference between a racehorse and a plow horse. <laughs> Racehorses are exciting, aren't they? But if every race horse on the globe died, what difference would it make, really? <laughs> Not as much gambling. But a plow horse, plow horse plods along and the ground is broken up so seed can be planted and food comes forth. There's a great difference between a plow horse and a race horse. <laughs> And I must say that in Christian ministry, I have over the years seen many churches and men who are racehorses. And it has also been my blessing to associate with many churches and men who are plow horses. The faithful plotter is the one who really makes a difference in the long run. This church has been a faithful plotter. I know your deeds, perseverance. You have perseverance and have endured for my sake and have not grown weary. We mustn't be proud, but let's thank God that he has put the spirit here that has allowed us to do that. And that you cannot endure evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And my, as I look back over the history of this church, how that fits our history. <laughs> We're so fortunate to have in this church elders and have had for many years Men who test doctrine, who test movements. And sometimes because they have taken a stand, it has cost us. It has cost the church. Two immediately come to mind. There was a movement among worship leaders at one time to begin focusing upon the romantic side of God. And instead of saying we, we love God, we are in love with Jesus. And it became very romantic and just really was getting out of hand. TCF's worship leaders were caught up in that and they were attending various conferences. And so the elders sent Barbara and me to a conference uh, in, in Missouri. Uh, I'll not say the name of the place. And we sat in the congregation, there was about, I'd say, around a thousand worship leaders. And if I told you the name of the speakers, you would know who they were, but I'm not going to identify them. But one allegorized the Song of Solomon in a way that was, well, I was disgusted. <laughs> 
And then a speaker got up, and I will not dare use the language in your presence, a mixed company like this that he used. But in essence, he spoke about our having sex with God. And I got our worship leaders in the back room, and I said, Brothers and sisters, this is blasphemy. And sarcastically, one of them said to me, Oh, we're so glad you're here to tell us. <laughs> As if they resented my being here, there. And when we came back and I reported to the elders what the experience had been, we had meetings with the worship leaders and tried to reason with them. And finally, the entire worship team left with the exception of Larry Beck. And they took with them many members of the congregation. But I believe the Lord Jesus looked at the elders on that day and said, Well done, good and faithful servants. You tested those who claimed to be apostles and found them wanting. 1996, when the Toronto blessing was just everywhere, there were some in TCF that God caught up in that. Matter of fact, we had one joint meeting with another church, and one of the leaders of that church confided, I believe it was to Gordon, that the reason they were joining with us in that meeting was so they could bring the Toronto blessing into TCF. What a horrible time that was. And those were, some of these were wanting us to forsake the call to world evangelism. The fact that God has called this church to the distant fields of harvest and get caught up in all of this fad, which is frankly what it was. And many of the manifestations that supposedly were of the Holy Spirit had to be demonic. The elders took a stand. And again... I, my memory is correct, about 25% of the church was carried off with that. But again, I think the elders looked at the church and said, Well done, good and faithful servants. You have tested those who have claimed to be apostles, and they are not. And you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Who were the Nicolaitans? Now, there are some people who look at that word and look at the etymology of it, Laos being people, Nikos being rulers. And so there are some that have said, okay, these were people in the Ephesian church that were trying to make a distinction between clergy and laity, and they had clergy that were ruling the church. That's not what that's all about, in spite of what a lot of... Biblical writers say, the Nicolaitans, according to Irenaeus, Irenaeus was church leader, uh, born around 125. He was a student of Polycarp, who was a companion of John the Apostle. And he wrote around uh, 175 to 185 a document called Against Heresies. And he described the heresies that were plaguing the church in his day. And one of those that was still around was Nicolaitanism. And he said this doctrine or this belief began with one of the original deacons of the church, Nicholas, that you find mentioned in, uh, in Acts. 
And the Greek Gnostic philosophy began to creep into the church. It became the popular thing in society. And Nicholas adopted that, and he began to preach it and gathered a huge number of followers. And it was a form of Corinthian Gnosticism, which said that the, and all Gnosticism said this, all evil, all thing that's physical and material is evil, all that is spirit is good. And out of that came one very stoic movement, but Serenthius had the other idea. Since my spirit is good and my body is evil and my body can't do anything to affect my spirit, then all kind of license is possible. So sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, all of that was a part of the Nicolaitan teaching. And one writer said they were as dissolute as he goats. <laughs> describing the Nicolaitans. In other words, that's what the surrounding culture taught. But the elders at Ephesus said, not here, not here. We'll not allow that doctrine. One of the challenges we face today is how culture is abandoning Biblical truth, traditional truth, and some of it just makes sense whether the Bible asserted it or not. Last week, I believe it was in Nashville, a, a statement was released which affirmed the biblical view of marriage, the difference between men and women, <laughs> honored women, honored men, talked about the fact that homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, all of this is cannot be really accepted by anyone who truly calls himself a Christian. Dare I say, all hell broke loose <laughs> as all kinds of people on television and others began attacking the Nashville statement, which really presented biblical truth. The TCF, realizing that the time may come where we may be facing some kind of a lawsuit because we will not abide by societal cultural norms but insist on biblical norms. Moves have been made to protect that. For instance, the elders made the ruling that the church building can only be used for events that involve church members. Therefore, if anyone wants to get married here, they have to be a church member. <laughs> and on and on and on the document goes. But the point being, this was to try to protect us from being sued when we will not allow a same-sex marriage in this building. Thank God the elders have had the courage to take that kind of stand. And who knows down the road what it will be. You probably heard of the Canadian minister preacher that was arrested and fined because he said from the pulpit, homosexuality is a cancer on the body of the human race. He was arrested and fined. California right now has some bills in the legislature that will limit what you can say. Whatever the price is, our elders are willing to pay the price, <laughs> but wisely will do all possible
to avoid having to do so. Now the fourth thing that Jesus said to the church of Ephesus could be a bit puzzling. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. For else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That really puzzled me as I began to think about TCF. What does it mean for a church? To leave its first love. And notice the exhortation is do the deed you did at first. <laughs> is there anything we used to do that expressed our love for God that we're no longer doing? Is this something that we could address corporately or is it something for us individually one thing that we'll notice as we study the minor prophets this fall is in many of them they encountered a situation Israel in which the nature of their quote, religion had become ceremonial. It was ceremonialism. And so the people just habitually went through the same thing week after week after week after week. They followed all the ceremony, all the religion, but it was not their heart. And some of them lived lives that were ungodly. And one of the minor prophets talks about those who, yes, they show, to the, show up to the worship service and they hardly wait for it to get over with so they can get out of there and go back to their other stuff. Individually, could that be true of any one of us? Is it possible to go to the Lord's table out of mere habit? And hold in our hands the cup representing the blood of Jesus and the loaf, the body of Christ. And partake of this thoughtlessly. If so, Paul says you take damnation to your soul if you do that. It is so wonderful to me to see the reverence in this church when we partake of the Lord's Supper. But what could we, if we look in the mirror with all honesty, say we're not doing the deeds that we did at first, which reflect diminishing of the love of God? Some things perhaps come to my mind, but maybe they're just coming to my mind. (laughs) I'd leave that for you to decide and pray about. Something serious to think about, isn't it? What kind of a grade would Jesus give TCF? (laughs) Well, I imagine there's some folks in Tulsa would say, oh, at least a D, (laughs) because it's such a boring church. 
you know, you don't hear a lot of hoop-de-doo on Sunday. We don't have smoke and flashing lights and loud drums. Thank God. <laughs> I attended a church service a while back, and I turned to the preacher next to me, and I said, let me tell you, this thing is hurting my ears so much. If I came one Sunday, I'd never come back. Why should I sit through 30 minutes of pain? He said, oh, it's so anointed. I thought horse feathers. It's... <laughs> And I tell you, I talked to one man who for years attended TCF, no longer does. He said, even though I'm no longer there, I'll say this. If it's at TCF, it's genuine, it's real. I'd rather have that than a lot of hoop de doo wouldn't you? So the world might grade us in different ways. People like our missions, people grade us highly because that's our call, but that's our call. We didn't choose that. But notice it speaks of deeds. What are the deeds of the past, if there are any, that we need to return to? I'll not answer that at all. <laughs> but I'll leave that for you to ponder and pray about and seek perhaps if God says something to us. One thing that for me personally keeps my heart tender toward God is to realize the truth of one of the songs we sung today how good he has been to me how good God has been to me I've said from this pulpit before as I think about the grace of God probably the very first grace God extended to me was not letting me be born on a garbage dump in Mexico I was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, October 5th, 1930, to a good, solid family. Oh, what a grace extended to me. God's grace has been extended to me by letting me have you. I cannot think of a church anywhere where I would rather be than this one. I thank God that he's given me, as I've said, more friends than it's legal to have. And can you believe a month from Tuesday I'll be 87? Unbelievable. And I can do anything I could have done when I was 50. A little slower. Notice how I get up the steps. God is so good to me. But God is so good to us as a church, hasn't he been? Father, we thank you for the blessings you've given us. And if there is anything that we need to acknowledge that we need to change. We don't want to follow human ideas, but the leading of your spirit. But we thank you for what you have given to us. None of us made this church happen. We have just been recipients of your goodness. We thank you through Jesus. Amen.